You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, we have been walking through the footsteps and walking with Jesus in his steps through the gospel of the book of John Mark. It's called John Mark because that's his full name. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the guy named Mark, his name is actually John Mark, and he actually traveled and journeyed with the apostles. It's the shortest and first gospel that was written out of the four. By the way, there's only one gospel, but there are four accounts. And each account is an eye of the life of Christ through a different angle. Uh, many of those gospels share similar stories, but they are different accounts of the same life. So some of those gospels have similar stories or ones that aren't even in the others. John Mark was... a Basically, he traveled with the Apostle Paul. He traveled with the Apostle Peter. He is the cousin of Barnabas, who is one of the early church leaders. And his mother was to believe the play was believed to be the place where the Last Supper occurred. And he actually walked as one of the followers of Christ during the time of Jesus' life for those three years. Who is this man, Jesus? You know, we see his name in Hebrew, and, and uh, we see it in Greek and up on the screen there, and you wonder, who is, who is that man? Who is he? Who is this Yeshua HaMashiach that the world would change the course of the history would literally teeter-totter on his very existence and life? And in two weeks, on March 27th, the, the Christian community around the world with one voice proclaims the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we worship on Sundays because of the resurrection. It wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus that the early church began to meet on Sundays to remember and to celebrate that he was alive. So the fact that we are here today is for the purpose of celebrating that he is risen. Now, on the 27th, there are those that are more inclined to go to church than any other time of year. So I want to challenge you to invite somebody to church with you on March 27th. And what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is we've been doing kind of a helicopter flyover of the gospel of Mark. And uh, we've been taking chunks of chapters in one week. Next week is the cross. We're going to be talking about the very last week of Jesus known as the Passion Week and talk about that crucifixion night known as the Passion of Christ, and that'll lead us to the following week, which will be the resurrection. So don't miss next week. Bring somebody next week, and definitely bring somebody on Easter. Now, John Mark focuses on the responses that people had to Jesus, the good and the bad. During that time, Rome had conquered the majority of the world. They ruled with a heavy and harsh hand. Religion was cold and heartless. Life is hard and hopeless. The people are looking and they are praying for help. And over the last couple of weeks, John Mark has explained explicitly the authority of Jesus, the controversy of Jesus, and the kingdom of Jesus. Today, I want to talk about the confession of Jesus. As we're tracking the life of Jesus, here's a little bit of review. Jesus, as you know, was born in Bethlehem. He traveled to Egypt as a child, which, by the way, there's a movie that came out this week called The Young Messiah. And uh, 
I will see it because I'm very interested in any portrayal of Jesus, but you must realize that a lot of what happens in that movie did not happen in the Bible. Some of it did, but we have little to no information at all about the childhood of Jesus. So this movie is pure speculation as to what it might have been to be Jesus. But what you need to realize is that he did have a childhood, and he was a teenager, and he did become an adult. The Bible does not speak much about his life. After they moved from Egypt, they moved to Nazareth where he was raised and he lived. He traveled to Jerusalem almost every single year of his life. But at 30 years old, he went on tour. And Jesus began his earthly ministry and the great magic mystery tour of Jesus begun. And it was a three-year Jesus tour and it covered predominantly two areas of Judea And Galilee, the great Jesus tour, the Galilean ministry has 55 events recorded in the Gospels, and the Judean ministry has 42 events recorded in the Gospel. And uh, during that three-year period, he would every year during Passover, which was this time of year right now, he would travel to Jerusalem and then back to his area. Now, what's also interesting about the life of Jesus, we talked a little bit about this last week. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but when he began his ministry, his hometown rejected him, and so the Bible says he actually moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and he lived in Capernaum for three years, and he had this great Galilean tour and this Judean tour, and every time he toured and traveled, he would circle back to his home in Capernaum, which was right on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was kind of like the port to where he traveled all over Galilee. So what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of dive in to the idea of the crisis of faith of his followers. You see, the followers of Jesus didn't quite understand who Jesus was until later. They were often confused and clueless. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of those moments where these confused and clueless disciples were just trying to figure out what was going on during that great Jesus tour. So let's look at a past story, and then we're going to catch up to where we left off last week. In Mark chapter 4, you might have heard the story where Jesus gets up and he calms the waves in the middle of a storm. He was kind of sleeping on the boat, some of the other gospels say. uh, But in gospel of Mark, he gets up, he tells the storm to be quiet. Let's read it in verse 39 of Mark 4. He says, he got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, they were in a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And he said, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now Jesus calming the storms, which he did often, was a mark of his divinity. That God himself was walking on the earth. The very one who created nature is now in command of nature. Now he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith. Don't you realize, guys, I'm with you? And if I'm with you, then you're not going to be hurt. And he says, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. After he calmed the storm, the disciples began to say, again, who is this? Confused and clueless. What we're going to look at is we're going to look at some of those confused questions that we often have and that the disciples had. And there's the first one is, who is Jesus? The disciples were constantly 
constantly asking the question, who is this? Who is Jesus? Who is he? Now, last, last week we left off in a town called Magdala, which is where Mary uh, Magdala is from. And uh, in Mark chapter 8 is where we left off. So let's jump there and look at some of the more confused and clueless disciples. Jesus had uh, came into town. The local Pharisees began to fight with him. They were demanding a miracle. And uh, Jesus did whatever you, uh, he did then what he still does today. Whenever you try to demand something from him, he leaves. Uh, look at Mark 8:12. He sighed deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. You see, you can't, Demand stuff from Jesus. You don't demand, you know, some of you are like, Jesus, uh, if you don't do this and I'm out of here. Jesus, if you don't heal me or give me some kind of financial breakthrough or if you don't save my kids, if you don't fix my marriage, then Jesus, I'm out of here. You know what? Jesus says, no, 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 I'm out of here. You don't demand things from me. I'm always here. You know, I'll never leave you and forsake you, but don't expect to understand who I am in my presence if you're constantly demanding things from me. So he left them, and he got into the boat again, and he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is what's funny. He was all frustrated with the people, frustrated with the Pharisees for demanding miracles. And uh, now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus, reeling from that experience with the Pharisees, he began to caution them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, basically that means leaven is a very small amount of bacteria that is used to, to, uh, as yeast to basically raise or to, to, to cause bread to rise. Now, Leaven is often used as a picture of sin and corruption. So he says all it takes is a little bit of corruption to ruin a lot, to, to cause a lot of damage. He's warning them, but I love this. Then the very next verse, it says, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. ADD disciples, right? I mean, these guys are like, Jesus is like, you know, uh, beware the leaven of the disciples. And the guys are going, Bread. He said bread. You guys are hungry. I'm bread. Man, I would love some bread. We're hungry. And Jesus, aware of this, aware of their short attention span, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Here's the next question we always have, just like these clueless and confused disciples is, will Jesus really take care of our needs? Often we're just like the disciples. God's trying to teach us something. God's just pouring his heart out to us and trying to reveal himself. And we're like, but God, will you take care of me? Will you take care of my needs? Will you provide for me? Then they crossed over to a place called Bethesda on the other side of the Sea Galilee. Jesus began to preach. He heals a blind man. And then they traveled north to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus starts preaching there. And this is what happens in Mark 8, 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say? That I am. That, my friend, is the million-dollar question of every single person in this room. Who do people say that I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist. They didn't have CNN. They didn't know if Jesus was John the Baptist or not. They didn't have an ID or any kind of picture. It was like, well, maybe this guy is John the Baptist. Or maybe some say he's Elijah, come back from the dead. And others say maybe one of the prophets. And then he says, but what about 
you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, well, you're the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. Uh, Why? Because the cross had not yet come, and the declaration of who he is was not to happen until after the resurrection. Now, they didn't understand this. And some of you might read this and go, well, Peter's not so confused after all. He's got to figure it out, right? Well, just give him a second, because then you'll see how confused Peter is. In Mark 8, 31, the very next verse, it says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he rejected that he would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. This is one of three times in the next three chapters that Jesus predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. For the first time, he's pouring out his mission to his disciples. And then Peter, <laughs> he's such an idiot. He, he, Jesus, come here for a second. It says he took Jesus aside, come here, Jesus, and began to rebuke him. Rebuking Jesus, not so smart, right? He's clueless. And so he brings him together. But when Jesus, I love this, turned and looked at his disciples, can you imagine what his look might have been? Peter is saying to Jesus, come here, Jesus, I got to, you know, you really shouldn't say that you're going to die. And then all the disciples over there, they know what they're talking about. And Jesus kind of turns around and looks at these disciples like, can you believe this guy? Did you guys have him put, ask him this? Are you all thinking this? He's looking at, I mean, like laser eyes, like, you know, when Superman's, you know, I can just see that happening. He, I love this. He turned and looked at his disciples And he rebuked Peter. It said, get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. You do not have the mind, uh, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So here again, the confused and clueless Peter asked a question that we would ask, and that is, can we trust God's plan? See, these are all the questions that we ask. God, who are you really? Who is Jesus? God, are you going to take care of my needs? And this is a big question. God, can we really trust that your plan is the right plan for our life? Is your plan the one that we can believe in? So they travel further north up to Mount Hebron where things get really weird. Maybe you've heard this story in Mark 9 too. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain, believed to be Mount Hebron, uh, where they were all alone. That's just north of Caesarea Philippi. And uh, there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah, the great prophet, and Moses, the lawgiver, who were talking with Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine this for a minute. Jesus is just like you and me when he's on the earth walking. He's God on the earth taking on a fully 100% human body. Jesus is fully man. He is fully God. But as he walks with his disciples, he he looks much like you and me. But at this moment, on this great holy mountain, Mount Hebron, 
he's standing up there and they begin to see him in the glory in which he is in heaven. Completely transfigured into a bright, shining, glowing, just this massive bright light that was brighter than anything they'd ever seen in their life. They see him in his full glory. But yet right next to him on either side is Elijah, who's considered the great prophet of the Old Testament, the greatest prophet that they were looking for to prepare the world for the Messiah. And then Moses, the greatest prophet, who's the lawgiver, the one who gave the word of God to the people. And he's saying at that moment of the transfiguration to his disciples, his full divinity is being exposed and that even Elijah the prophet who represents all the prophets and Moses who represents all of the word of God, the law, is in submission to his deity and who he is and his complete divinity is revealed. His authority is revealed that he is truly the one. Now Peter watching this says to Jesus, Rabbi, I love this, is it good for us to be here? <laughs> should, should we be here right now? Is this something that we should really being seeing, uh, be seeing? He says, let us put up three shelters, one for each of you, right? And uh, one for Moses, one for you, of course, one for Elijah. Uh, and then I love verse 6, he didn't know what to say. They were frightened. Is this a good idea? Jesus, should we build a house for you guys? Should we build an altar for you guys? Uh, and I love this. Um, should we worship? Well, I don't know what to do here. And then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. And a voice from heaven, the Father himself spoke and says, This is my son whom I love Listen to him. Basically, trust him. Now, suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And here is the question of these confused and uh, uh, clueless disciples that they often ask, can we trust God's word. The very voice from the Father was, trust the words that he speaks. But we often ask ourselves, can we really trust the word of God? Is it really applicable to us today? Is God's word, is the words of Jesus, is it really something that we can believe in? As Jesus explains their questions, they seem to be even more clueless as you read on in chapter 9. So he returns to the other disciples, and he sees that they are struggling to, to get a crowd under control. A massive crowd had come out. They were bringing their demon-possessed kids to them, and the disciples could not cast out the demons. And Jesus says, where is your faith? You have so little faith, and you need to realize that these, are, that these must come out through a deep sincerity and worship unto God through, fair, through prayer and fasting. And he asks this question. Uh, we ask this question. This is the question of the disciples. Is The question is, through that event in Mark 9, is can God really use me? There's this example time and time again where they just were stumbling and failing and, and clueless and confused. They're wondering, God, can you, can you really use me? Can I really trust you? Can I really trust your word? Can I really trust your plan? Are you really going to provide for my needs? Who is this man, Jesus? The questions just kept coming. As they were walking through Galilee, Jesus again uh, began to predict his death a second time. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, he said to them, 
The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Again, these confused and clueless disciples asked a question we often ask, and that is, does God really know what he is doing? Sometimes when things begin to happen in our life, we begin to wonder if this is really what God wants, is this really something that, that I can rely on? Does God really know what he is doing? In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is pouring his heart out to them about the cross. And they came to a place called Capernaum where uh, when he was in the house, his house, and he asked them, uh, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, think about this. He had just told them that he was going to die that he was going to be buried, that he would be persecuted and beaten. And they were arguing on the road about what? And he says, but they kept quiet on the way because they were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, this is a question that we often ask ourselves as well. Is God, I know you're good. I know you're great. But God, will I get what's coming to me? God, will I get recognized for the things that I do? See, these are questions of our faith. These are the crisis questions of our faith, of our life. God is, I want to follow you. I want to live for you. I know who you are. I kind of believe, I kind of know who you are. But God, are you really, are you going to take care of me and recognize the things that I do? Am I going to be successful? And at this point, he leaves Galilee and he begins what's known as the Great Judean Tour, which is his third year of ministry. Uh, and in this, in Mark, Jesus confronts some Pharisees. He teaches on marriage. He teaches on the sanctity of marriage, marriage between a man and a woman. He has a conversation with a wealthy man who walks away sad because his hands are so tight, white-fisted around his possessions that he can't let him go to follow Jesus. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, we have this conversation with his disciples. They were on their way to Jerusalem when Jesus leading the way and his disciples were astonished. Some translations say his disciples were confused. Some translations say they were perplexed or he was in awe and those who followed him were afraid. Still, three years into his ministry and the disciples still hadn't got their handle on who Jesus was. Walking through Judea, Jesus predicts his death a third time in 32. Verse 32 says, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. He says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, he says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise. Great insight from Jesus, uh, but how do they respond? This is insane because Jesus again is saying, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be beaten, arrested, and crucified. And this is what they say. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Dumb way to start a conversation with Jesus, by the way. If you're in prayer, Jesus, I'm coming before you today, and I want you to do whatever I ask. That just sounds stupid and arrogant, and I just don't expect it to get what you want. Uh, and I love what Jesus' response is. He goes, what do you want me to do for you? I can almost hear him saying it that way. 
as opposed to, yes, what shall you have? Your wish is my command. I'm sure it's more of a, what do you want? What is it? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Give us a place of equal honor with you. And then Jesus says, you are clueless. He says, you don't know what you are asking. And here's the next question I think we always ask. Is it, God, can I, can I trust you? Can I trust God with the future of my life? See, these guys are thinking about, is God going to put me in a place, of position? Is he going to make me successful? Am I going to be a celebrity? Am I going to be a great athlete? Am I, God, I know you're great. You get all the glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about me, Jesus? Will you let me be a person who's famous too? Yeah, I want you to be famous. But will you put me on the postcards? Will you put me on the magazines? Jesus, will you put me on the cereal box? Will you put me on the TV? Will you put me on ESPN? Will you put me on the Oscars? God, will you put me? We do the exact same thing. God is not promising to put you in a place of authority and position with him. He's asking us to follow him. But our response is, but God, will you make me famous too? See, these dazed and confused disciples are a lot like us. We ask these exact same questions throughout our life. As we walk with God, God, can we trust your word? Can we trust your plan? God, do you really know what you are doing? God, uh, uh, will I be recognized for the things that I do if I follow you? And God, will you lift me up? Will you make me famous just like you? Now, this is where we're going to stop in Mark, and we're going to go back and look at some of his responses. Next week, we're going to pick up in chapter 11, where the great Jesus tour comes to an end. What I want to do is I want to look at what it means to walk in faith. This is the crisis of faith. These are the questions we ask when we're confronted with, will you be a follower of Jesus? I would like to be a follower, but God, will you take care of me? God, I would like to be a follower, but will I still get what's coming to me? God, I would like to be a follower, but can I still follow my dreams and my plan? And this is what Jesus says each time they begin to ask him these crisis of faith, questions from these clueless and confused disciples this is the walk. Jesus responds, the walk away from this is this. Here's a couple of highlights from his responses. Number one is this, is uh, you worry so much, but Jesus has got you covered. This is the response to Jesus. The question is, God, will you take care of my needs? His response is, if you're a follower of me, if you're a disciple of mine, I got you. This is what happened in Mark chapter 8, when they were worrying and discussing about not having bread, and they were worrying about if they were going to eat, this is what Jesus said, aware that they were saying this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive yet or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? He says, don't worry, you're with me. I got you covered. I got you. You know, when my kids were younger, they never had to worry about whether they were going to eat when we went out. 
because they knew as long as they were dad and mom, I got you, you know. As they get older, they learn how to pay for themselves sometimes. But as long as you're under the authority and the protection of your father, I got you. And you know what God is saying to some of you? This is a word for some of you today. You worry so much. And Jesus is saying, if you're with me, if you're my disciple, and if you're walking with me, I got you. Here's the second response, and I love this one. He says, uh, and, and all these questions kind of bring back to this one, is that you don't and you won't know everything. You, like the disciples, are confused and clueless, and you have one stumble after another. Just when you think you have it figured out, you realize you ain't got nothing. You know what I've realized the older I get is I know less and less and less. And, and, and I think that's a part of, of walking with Jesus and knowing him is that I won't, you know, in the early days when I was, a, honestly, I went to Bible school, so I know way more than you. And uh, I went to two Bible schools, so I know way, way more than you. And oftentimes, when, I, when we were in Bible school, all these arrogant, prideful minister-type dudes and dudettes, we all had an answer for everything. We did. We would sit at lunch and at dinner, and we would just debate over our rightness, over our theology. And we would just kind of have these intellectual debates about, well, what if, da-da-da-da. Well, I've got, bam, bam, bam. We got like quoting verses and all this. and all. We got it all figured out until we step into real life and we're meeting real people. And we realize that life isn't everything that we thought. We don't know everything that we thought. And I won't and we won't and you won't know everything. And the disciples learned that real fast. They talked with Jesus. They saw miracles. They saw the transfiguration. They heard the very voice of the Father, yet they were still confused. There's hope for you. Know this. Jesus never slapped him on the back of the head and said, you dummy. I can imagine him, though, taking him in his head and giving him a noogie and saying, you knucklehead, I love you. I'm patient with you, spiritual knucklehead. God is saying to some of you, you feel dazed and confused and you're stumbling through your walk with faith. And you know what? Jesus is a loving, patient father who says, keep walking with me, you'll get it. Here's the third thing that really stood out to me is that Jesus says this very clearly. If you want to be great, if you want to be truly great, choose humility. We often have Muhammad Ali syndrome. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something about a political candidate right now, but it's not an endorsement nor uh, a non-endorsement. It's just an interesting fact of someone who I think has got real arrogance issues. And just saying that, you all know who I'm already talking about. That's the irony of this. I'm not even going to say his name, and you're going to know who I'm talking about. Uh, there was a particular candidate who was giving a speech, and uh, he was about to be rushed on the stage. So the security got around him, and they discouraged it, and the crowd died down. And he says, I left comfort for this. You know, I had life so easy. Why am I doing this? And his words blew me away. He goes, because I'm terrific, because I'm awesome, because I'm successful, because I have achieved so much and I want to make America great. Okay, now, just saying that, you kind of know who it is. So, because um, that's a slogan. 
part of it at least. Uh, now, it's the gist of what he said, and that is, why do I want to do this? Because I am awesome. Now, whether you like that or not, that's not the question here. If you want to be great, you choose humility. That's what the scriptures tell us. In fact, let's take a look. The disciples were constantly arguing who was the greatest. We all got Muhammad Ali syndrome. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Or the uh, Mr. T syndrome. I pity the fool. Who doesn't understand how great I pity the fool? You guys remember him, Rocky. Okay. <laughs> the disciples are often arguing about who is the greatest. This is what happened in Mark 9. Verse 33 says, uh, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they were arguing about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And Mark 10, a little bit later, he calls the children uh, to him and he says this in 10:15. truly I tell you, if anyone will not receive the kingdom of heaven like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. He says, if you want to be great, you got to be last. If you want to be great, you got to be willing to serve. He's going to talk about it again because this is something he constantly was driving home with his disciples. When he called the children, he says, unless you come to me like these kids, you'll have no place with me. How do these kids come? Not with this arrogance or pride that they knew everything or they understood everything. That's what's great about kids. They got a lot of questions. That's what's great about kids. They don't assume that they know stuff. Now, they like to pretend they know stuff, but when it comes down to it, they don't know jack, do they? I mean, they're, they're still learning. They're growing. And there's this sense of brokenness and humility and honesty and transparency, not perfection, but a pureness in their heart. And Jesus says, if you think that you can come to me in any other way, but then, but then the way that these guys come, if you don't come with the spirit and attitude like a child has, you'll have no place in my kingdom, he says. And then a short time after that, after James and John asked for seats of honor, Next to Jesus, this is what he said in verse 38. He says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. You're clueless. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? What was he talking about? He says, can you drink the cup of death? Can you drink the cup of the cross? Can you drink the cup of persecution and torture that I'm about to go through? Can you... Drink the cup. Will you be baptized in the sins of the world? He says, can you drink that? Can you sit with me? Can you do that? And they said, we can. They answered. His response was not, you bunch of dummies, but rather, he says, you'll get this one day. But right now you don't. He says, but you will one day. Because he says this, verse 39, Jesus says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. What does that mean? All of these disciples were tortured and many of them were crucified. All of them but one were martyred and put to death, had their heads cut off, were stabbed, had their limbs dismembered. Uh, they were mutilated for the name and the cause of Christ. He says, you don't know what you're talking about right now, but trust me, one day you will experience this torturous life you will bleed and suffer, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. 
The disciples got upset with James and John after trying to kind of weasel their way into a position with Jesus. And this is what Jesus then said to all the disciples. He gathered them all together. And in verse 43, he says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, listen. You want to be great in the eyes of God? It's not about your money. It's not about your status. It's not about your medals. It's not about your trophies. It's not about your plaques. It's not about your paycheck. It's not about your position. It's not about your popularity. It's not about your possessions or that house or that stature. It's not about your car. It's not about your uh, um, uh, uh way of looking at others. It's not because of your good deeds or actions. He says it's because of this. It's because of your humility. It's laying down your life for others. Choosing to serve. Choosing to be last. Choosing to sacrifice your comfort. This is, by the way, when you look the most like Jesus. When you give your life and your comfort and your convenience for another person. Those that set up and clean up, those that come early, those that serve with little to no recognition, that's when we look most like Jesus. He says, if you want to be great in the eyes of God, serve. Lay your life down, choose humility, choose to be last. Don't braggadociously say how awesome you are. Number four, he says, you must answer, this is the question The response is, you must answer the who do you say I am question of Jesus. This is something that jumps out walking in faith. This is the great confession. Mark 8, 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Again, this is your million-dollar question. This is the only question in your life that matters. If you can't get past this question, if you can't answer this question, then you uh, will be lost in life. You'll be confused You'll be clueless. You'll be wandering your whole life until you get this question settled. They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, so others, one of the prophets. What people say about Jesus today is similar. He's a good man. He's a prophet. He's a fabricated, embellished myth. We all have opinions. And until we get this question settled, we're stuck. But what about you? That's the question that Jesus has for you. What about you? What do you, not what does your mama think about Jesus, not what does your daddy think about Jesus, not what does your husband or your wife think about Jesus, not what does your boss think about Jesus or your friends think about Jesus or your children or your brother or your sister, is what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Matthew 16, 16, we get a longer answer. Matthew, who was there, said that Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, which means you are the promised Savior, God in the flesh. Guys, no one can truly say that until the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. But when the Holy Spirit truly reveals it to you, There's only but one response. I will follow. And this is the last thing that really stands out to me that is a response to some of those questions from the disciples and us. And that is you must find yourself at the empty tomb. You see, miracle after miracle, amazed and confused. Teaching after teaching, dazed and confused. 
walking with Jesus. Who is this man? Jesus, will you take care of me? Jesus, can I trust your word? Jesus, can I trust your plans and your future for my life? Jesus, will you put me in a place of honor? Jesus, will I be recognized over and over again? The night he was even arrested, after three years, the day before his cross, still confused in John 13, Jesus replied in 7 and 19, do you not realize what I'm doing? But later he says, you'll understand. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. In John 13, 29, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. What changed What changed? Here's the amazing thing. It wasn't the cross that changed them. It was the resurrection that changed them. The resurrection changed everything. Those dazed and confused followers began to change the world because of that empty grave. There are things that only the resurrection can explain. Some of you, you asked those exact same questions that we were looking at earlier. And you don't know how God's going to meet your needs, how God's going to provide for you, how God is going to lead you in your future and your plans and your marriage and your, your, your dating relationships. You don't understand. God, there are some things that only the empty tomb can explain. As you look at the empty tomb, you understand, God, you're who you say you are. And you're able, so I will trust. Until you find yourself at the tomb... Looking at the living Jesus with nail scars in his hands, you'll never understand who Jesus is. So I want to ask you, have you found yourself at the tomb? Have you found yourself gazing into the risen Lord's eyes? I want to end with a passage that's probably one of my favorite life verses. In, it's in the Gospel of Mark. And it's one of my favorite verses. I remember reading this as a teenager when I was about 15. And this verse became my life verse. And I remember praying very hard and difficult. Lord, uh, speak to me. I was a young man. Lord, I want to know you. Guide me, lead me. And I, you know, I read through the Bible. And I was just really hungry for God. And God had said, I want you to turn to this passage. And I really felt like the Lord was, was giving this to me as a confirmation in my life and what I was to do with my life. And it's in Mark chapter 8. He said this when he was walking along the road outside of the village of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. This is my life verse, Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. By the way, this is an invitation for everybody. That's why he called the crowd. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, a follower of me, must deny themselves. That means deny yourself. Your dreams, your plans, forfeit your life. It means death to your selfish ambitions. Deny yourself. Take up their cross. That means accept the pain, the shame, and the persecution that will come with following Jesus. And follow me. That means walk in my steps, follow my actions, live my attitudes and my teaching. He leads, you follow. See, here's the cost of being a true disciple. It's deny self. It's disown self, and it's follow Jesus, not yourself. And I think there are a lot of people who think they are a Christian but are not. They go to church. They may even tip God in the offering. They might even serve. They might even volunteer, but they don't deny themselves. 
They don't disown themselves, and they are still following themselves. But Jesus explains what he meant in the very next verse. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You see, to follow Jesus will cost you everything. Everything. That's why some of you are not truly followers of Christ. Because you're not willing to give him everything. You're not willing to give him your marriage or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You're not willing to give him your friendships and your relationships and your your party time. You're not willing to give him your weekends. You're not willing to give him your finances. You're not willing to give him every... You're not willing to give him your children or your parents. Some of you are not followers because you want the world. You want the success. You want the popularity. You want the possessions. You want the things that the world can give you. And as a result, some of you are not followers of Christ. And then he gives this challenge, and I want to pray with this. If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. So I have a question. Will you be ashamed of him today? Are you ashamed of him today? Or will you boldly proclaim that you are a disciple. I want us to pray. Father, I understand that in this room there are people in different places of their life. But Father, I pray that some of those questions, those clueless and confused questions that the disciples had, God, that many of us in this room have, that we will understand that the crisis of faith can lead us to the walk of faith when we see the empty tomb. God, our doubts and our fears and our anxieties and our worries are diminished at that empty tomb. As we look at the nail-scarred hands and his feet and his side, it changes everything. Right where you're sitting right now, will you ask yourself, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a disciple? Have you found yourself at the tomb? Have you found yourself at the cross? Have you seen the empty tomb and the empty grave? Have you seen the resurrected Lord? It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have fear. But walking with Jesus, he says, I got you. I got you. Right where you're sitting, will you just ask Jesus, Jesus, will you take me? Will you have me? Here's my life. Go ahead and if you have sin in your life, just say, God, here's my sin. Here's my fear. Here's my doubt. Here's my habits. Here's my depression. God, will you have me? Jesus says, I got you. Come on. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty grave that proves it all is true. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to give you a chance to respond to this this morning. And the Bible says that if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, then I will be ashamed of them. I want to give you a chance to not be ashamed. And I'm going to ask a very simple, simple challenge, and that is 
I'm going to be silent for a moment, and I'm going to ask you that if you are a disciple of Jesus, will you boldly proclaim that and simply stand and say, I am a disciple? Here in just a second, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, are you a disciple? And if you are, will you stand and boldly proclaim that? Father, thank you that you're giving us a chance to proclaim our faith to our friends and our family. That God, if we can't be bold in here, how can we bold be bold out there? So Father, this is the first step. God, we will, with unashamed proclamation, say that I am a disciple for those that truly are. So at this time right now, in the silence of this room, who will be the first to stand and say, I am a disciple, and who will be the next? Let me hear you say it. Come on, say it. Let's say it again. And it's beautiful, Jesus. God, teach us what it means to be a disciple, to walk with you. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hey, uh, here in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to be seated as we worship God. But stay standing for a second because I want you guys to know something. Being a disciple is this. If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's a disciple. Let's do this together. Let's follow Jesus together. Amen? And bring someone with you next week as we talk about the cross. If you would like to know more about what it means to be a disciple, fill out that connection card and drop it in the bucket. I'd love to get a hold of you. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.